I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. I am so excited to be partnering with Rockets of Awesome, which is one of my favorite places to get kids' clothes. They had a pop-up in New York last year, and we would go and jump in the ball pit and buy clothes, and it was great. And now um, they're offering listeners 20% off of their Rockets of Awesome box, which comes four times a year with like a magical box of clothes that'll come and surprise and delight your kids because what's more fun than opening up a box of clothes? Well, I mean, I guess maybe a box of toys, but anyway, um, Rockets of Awesome is amazing. Go to rocketsofawesome.com slash books and the discount code is books and it will be live August 1st and I hope you enjoy it and I'll be doing the box right along with you. I had such a nice time talking to Caroline Levitt. She is a New York Times bestselling author of 12 novels, many of which have been on the best of the year lists. She's also the co-founder of A Mighty Blaze, which is the initiative that helps authors and bookstores and just was formed during the pandemic. And it's been written up in the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, Vox, NPR, and more. Her 12th book, With or Without You, is just coming out and received a starred review from Kirkus and raves from many other publications. As a screenwriter, Caroline was a Nickelodeon Screenwriting Fellow finalist, a first-round finalist in the Sundance Screenwriting Lab competition for her script of Is This Tomorrow, and has many, many other prizes from the National Magazine Award and an honorable mention for the Goldenberg Prize for Fiction from the Bellevue Literary Review. I mean, she's just amazing. (laughs) She's appeared on the Today Show and many other TV shows and all the rest. She lives in Hoboken, New Jersey, which she calls New York City's unofficial sixth borough with her husband and has an acting student son named Max. I should also say she founded A Mighty Blaze with author Jenna Bloom. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I love your podcast. (laughs) I feel like I've been just like so in awe of what you've been doing since the pandemic started with A Mighty Blaze and all this stuff, how you're helping out all these authors. And I just like love watching, you know, I've been trying to help as well. And I get, I like, I'm so inspired by what you guys are doing. Thank you so much. I just, you know, I I grew up being the Pollyanna of my family where if something was wrong, I was always determined like, no, no, I'm going to fix it. And when the pandemic happened, I had a big event. My first event was at this library association in Texas and they canceled it. And I remember walking around the house saying, no, nothing is canceled. Nothing is canceled. So I put the word out to authors that, you know, don't worry, nothing is canceled. I'm going to put all of you on my blog. Just make me a short video, shout out another writer, shout out an indie bookstore. And all of a sudden I was inundated and I got more and more inundated. And then the Washington Post called me and I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just sort of doing it. And then lucky for me, Jenna Blum called me up and said, do you want to partner with me on this? And I said, yes, thank God, yes. And then it blew up even more. And it sort of, we have a staff of 20 now, all unpaid. No. Yep. Everybody's unpaid. Everybody's passionate. I said no about the fact that there were 20 people, not about the unpaid. That's also very impressive. (laughs) Yeah, there's 20 people and we need more. We actually need more. It's just so overwhelming that I feel like Jen and I always say, we're just two women writers in yoga pants and we're flying a plane and we have no idea how the plane works, (laughs) but it feels good to do something. And it's also really fun to connect with other writers and to help. 
I get that. That's amazing. Wow. Well, good for you. And now I have to figure out how to get anybody who helps me to do it for free. <laughs> no. Beg, begging work. Yeah, begging. Yeah, maybe I'll try that next. <laughs> but Mighty Blaze aside, which everybody who's listening should go check out right away and see just amazing author conversations all the time and everything you're, you guys are doing. But let's talk about With or Without You, your new book coming out, which was so good. Oh my gosh. I've been like reading it in bed night after night on my iPad, <laughs> like in the dark with like just the light of my screen <laughs> keeping me company. Thank so you. it's been really great. And now I feel like I'm in this like, you know, coma like, you know, alternate universe yeah. that you're trying to create here. So it's the whole alternative universe. That's that's the thing that with this show is interesting. Because I, when I started to write this book, I just thought, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write about coma because actually I was in a coma and unfortunately when I was in a coma or fortunately they gave me memory blockers so I didn't remember anything about what happened at all and nobody thought I was going to survive so they thought well that's okay anyway but I did survive and I did get well and the thing is my brain didn't remember anything but my body did and I would walk in a supermarket and I'd be with my husband and I'd see a package of soup and I'd break into a cold sweat wet and get into a panic attack and say, what is this? And Jeff would say, oh, that's the only thing you would eat when you came out of the coma. And I just didn't remember. And the other problem was that anybody who was around me at the time, all my friends and family, when I asked them, well, what happened? Nobody wanted to talk about it because they were so traumatized too. So I thought, well, how am I going to get through this? And one of my friends who was a psychologist said, you know what? You can create a memory. You're a writer. It's like hypnosis. If you tell somebody in hypnosis, oh, you're burning up, welts will appear on their skin. The brain doesn't know the difference. So he said, create somebody and live through them and you'll feel better. So I started doing all this research on coma. And to my surprise, the most interesting stories were about all these people who actually got better. You know, they became better people out of coma. One woman woke up and she had never play the note and suddenly she was playing the violin perfectly and she went on to play concert halls. This other guy woke up speaking fluent Mandarin and he quit his job as a computer specialist and he moved to China and he became a translator. And my favorite was this guy who woke up and he thought he was the actor Matthew McConaughey (laughs) and nobody could disabuse him of it. They showed him a mirror and said, look, here's you. Here's a picture of Matthew. And he said, they're both me. They're both me. And he kept saying, when is my agent going to call? Will you call my agent? And it took him six months to finally realize that he wasn't, even though part of him still really felt that he was. And I thought that that was so fascinating that I thought, oh, I want to write about that, about somebody who totally changes. And there's this whole other world and how it impacts her and how it impacts the people around her. And that's how the book came about. And it did heal me. It did make me feel so much better. I don't have, I still have some triggers. I'm still really afraid to go to sleep at night. But other than that, other stuff is is fine. So I was able to get away from that. Well, let's back up. And I know the story because I read your amazing piece in the Daily Beast about what happened to you. But had I not, I would not know what you were talking about. So tell <laughs> tell me, go back to what happened and how it was right after you gave birth and the blood, the rare blood thing. And- right. I I had a perfect pregnancy, a perfect, easy delivery the day I was supposed to go home. 
I took a shower in the hospital and I noticed that my stomach was really hard and really big, like I was 10 months pregnant. And I, the last thing I remember is saying to the doctor, look at this, isn't this weird? And he said, well, you had a C-section. It's probably just a blood clot. We'll like just do a little operation and you can go home tomorrow. And I said, fine, that's fine. The next thing I remember is, it was really sort of terrifying. I do remember waking up and I thought I was in a TV show that reality had changed because everything was in black and white. And I heard a soundtrack and a laugh track. And I was in this big, tall building and it was all steel. And on the wall, there was this big, huge photograph of Max, my baby. And underneath in my husband's writing, it said, get well soon, mommy, we miss you. And I must have tried to get up because all of a sudden everything went black again. So the next thing I remembered is I woke up again and it was again, the things were in color. And again, I thought, oh, it must be a TV show because there were all these doctors and people around me saying, you know, the cliche, do you know what day it is? Do you know what happened to you? Do you know your name? And I kept saying, yeah, like what's going on? And they told me that when they took me down to operate on the clot, they said it was like the shining. They opened me up and all this blood just poured out and out and out and out and out and they didn't know what to do. So they put me in the coma and for two weeks they kept doing operations to get the blood out and nobody knew what was going on. And they all thought, well, she's dying and we don't know why. She's just bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. So finally they had this little German hematologist who was about to retire. She was literally like, Real like about four feet five, about to retire, 78 years old. And she said, I think I know what it is. And it's this really rare thing, but we have to do a test because the treatment for it is so brutal. And the hospital, which was NYU, said, Well, that's a really expensive test and we don't want to do it. And my husband said, I will pay for it. Do the goddamn test. And they did the test. And sure enough, it showed this protein. Apparently, I don't want to scare any pregnant women out there because it's very rare and they do have treatments for it now. But apparently, like once you have a baby, your immune system is getting back together. And there can be this very rare glitch where your body produces this protein, which stops all your blood from clotting. Like everything, your brain, your eyes, your hips, your this, your that. And the way they, once they found that out, the way they treated it is they gave me hundreds of transfusions of factor eight, which is the protein to stop it. And when that didn't work, they had to give me this other transfusion of this poisonous thing. They took me down and they had to glue my brain, my, my, not my brains, my veins <laughs> shut so the bleeding would stop. And through all of this, I was on really heavy doses of morphine. So while I sort of understood what was going on, I was hallucinating madly. So I kept thinking that at one time I thought Madonna was in my room. And I kept asking her to leave. Another time, I honestly thought that the hospital was a sex clinic and that they were coming in to do stuff. And I was screaming at the doctors, I can't participate. I can't participate. I'm sick. I'm sick. And the worst thing was that while I was hallucinate, hallucinating, they didn't want me to move because they were afraid if I moved, I would hemorrhage. But if I didn't move, then all my muscles would atrophy. So it was always this weird thing. So I was on morphine and in the hospital for two months. I was in the coma for, the coma was two weeks. Hospital was like 
two months, I believe. And they wanted to keep me in the hospital longer, but insurance refused. By then my bills were over a million and insurance said, no, we're not going to, we can't pay for that. You can go home and we'll pay for a nurse, a private nurse. So I came home, had a sand bed, had a private nurse, um, still was under so much medication that time was so fluid. You know, I didn't know if I was in the present or if I was in the hospital and everything was sending me off. It took me about a year to get better, physically better, where I could walk and hold my baby and all this other stuff. And, you know, then I started getting all the post-traumatic stuff where all the triggers started coming and I didn't know why and nobody would talk to me about it. And the message was always, you know what? Be glad you're alive. Everything is fine. This is never going to happen to you again. But I still had to go to doctors. I had to go back to the hematologist every day for five years. Oh, and my I, gosh. Every day for five years? And I finally told him. And the thing is, like, with hematology, those are the really sick, sick people. So I would walk in and I would feel like, well, I'm walking and here are all these people in there. They looked really, really sick. And I finally said to the hematologist, I can't do this anymore. And he said, well, you have to. You were so, so sick. And I made a decision that I was not going to go back. And so I never went back. <laughs> and I was, my husband was not happy about that. And the hematologist obviously was not happy about that. But I kept saying, look, it's been five years and I'm fine and nothing's happened. And I know what it feels like to be sick. And if anything happens, I will come back. And he finally called me and said, okay, look, the only reason I'm saying okay is because they actually found a new cure for it. Well, not a cure, but a new treatment so they can get rid of it really quickly. And I mean, that was like 10 years ago. So I've never been back and I never will go back. <laughs> I never want to go to a hematologist ever, ever again, but I'm fine now. But I do know that I do have this thing that still lives in my body. And the only way it can ever come back is if I get repeated bouts of the flu or a cancer. I'm a little worried about COVID, but I've been okay for so long that I just feel I'm going to be okay. I mean, I'm going to be okay. So it's not a problem. So that was what happened. It's called a factor eight inhibitor. It was really, really rare, but I got through it. And, and what did you do? Like, how was it to also be a new mom at that time? It was terrible. It was terrible because when I was in the hospital, they would not bring the baby in. And I finally told them, if you don't bring the baby in, I'm not going to let you take blood. I'm not going to take transfusions. I'm going to refuse all treatment and I'm going to scream. And I was near hysterical. And they finally said, all right, all right. And they brought the baby in. And it was so strange because he was this tiny little stranger and he didn't know me. You know, he didn't know who I was and he was very upset and he was looking for his dad and Jeff said, don't worry, don't worry. And Jeff took videos of the baby and he brought them in for me. And the nurses who were just amazing gave up their break room for us. And they said, you can watch the movies in here. And all the nurses gathered around with me and Jeff to watch these movies of my baby. It was like his first bath and, you know, all his other first things. And I sat there crying, just saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. When I got home, I was not allowed to pick him up because they were afraid that there would be another bleed, but they would bring the baby into me every day so we could sort of get to know each other. But he, it was very hard for me because it took a really long time for him to 
bond with me. He was always looking for his dad and always looking for the baby nurse. And then finally one day, it was it was like six months in. I can't believe I'm, I'm really emotional about this. Six months in, he was laying beside me and he just looked at me and he put his little hand on my face. And I thought, oh, okay. And then we bonded after that. And, you know, we just, my son and I had, he's, he's 23 now, <laughs> but we began this intense, intense bond and love affair and everything was fine. But before that, it was really, really hard because I kept felt, feeling like, you know, what happened? Like I never got those. I had read every single book about parenting, you know, what you're supposed to do the first three months and all this stuff. And every day I was carrying him, I used to sing to him and talk to him. And so that was hard. That part was really, really hard. But the other part that was hard, too, was that I actually looked like a totally different person because I was on high doses of steroid. I was like, I mean, I really looked like I was way, way overweight. And my skin turned gray, like literally gray. And I lost all my hair. So... I didn't want to go out of the house and my husband just lost his job because they said, you're spending too much time taking care of your wife and your baby. So we had no, our our money was dwindling. I thought I have to get a job. So I was doing fashion copywriting then. And I called all my friends and said, please, if you have any work. And one of my friends who worked at Victoria's Secret said, I will give you a fashion book to write. $10,000. You can do it in your sleep. Just come in and pick it up. And I said, please don't make me come and pick it up. Can you just send it to me? Because I look really different and it's going to be terrible for me. And she said, no, no, don't be silly. Don't be ridiculous. Nobody cares. So I had to go in there. The only thing I could fit into was this muumuu. It was this red muumuu dress. And I put it on and I thought, what am I going to do about my head? And I put like this schmatter on my hair. I tried to put on makeup, but with gray skin, it looked ghastly. And I got on the subway and this was, you know, Manhattan. And there were these teenage girls there and they were snickering at me. And I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I said, this is okay. I can do this. And I got to Victoria's Secret. And, of course, everybody working there was young and beautiful and thin and wearing gorgeous clothes. And here I come in a moo-moo and a schmutter on my head. And they sort of looked at me and they said, okay, we'll go get Catherine. Catherine came out and I saw her face change. I saw her face literally go from two. And she came over to me and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I should have told you the project was canceled. No. Give me the work. Yes, she did. She said the project was canceled. And I said, that's okay. And I was really polite. And then I went home and I just cried and cried and cried. This is like, well, in a way it was a good thing because it made me realize that, you know what, I am never, ever going to, not that I did, but I was, I'm never, ever, ever going to make anybody feel weird about their appearance ever again. I'm always going to couple in people. And I actually started this thing afterwards where every day I would say something nice to someone on the street, like especially if it looked like somebody who didn't get many compliments. If it was a really old lady, I would say, oh my God, your hat is so cool. Or where'd you get those shoes or whatever. And just to feel like, okay, I'm erasing that memory and supplanting it with good memory. And it was actually an interesting thing because it took me about another year to get back where I looked like I had. And I lost a lot of all my obsessions about, oh, I don't have the right lipstick or, you know, my hair looks stupid. I was just so 
glad to have hair coming back in and to be able to fit in my clothes that it changed me. And that's what I wanted to write about, that, you know, you can have these incredible changes in your life and they may seem terrible and tragic at the time, but actually they create goodness, you know, like these really profound, amazing things can happen and change you for the better. And I feel like that's what happened to me. And that's what I wanted to give my characters. Oh my gosh, what a story. I know. I I, thank you for sharing it. And I am just, I can't believe you had to go through that and that you can sit here and like talk about it 20 some odd years later. And it still is just as raw. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's just awful. I mean, all these, the body is so weird. Do you like, you just, it's like, unless something goes wrong, you don't think about it that much. And then as soon as things go off course, it's just, that's it. It, I I mean, I know that's such an obvious thing to say, but it's just, it blows my mind to hear stories like yours. And I'm, I just, I, my heart goes out to you. I can feel the pain from that time and just, oh my God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like, you know, tragedy lives beside comedy and happiness. I mean, that's the weird thing. I'm a really, really happy person. I mean, outside of what's going on with the world and the pandemic and all that stuff, I feel there isn't a day that I don't wake up and think, oh my God, I'm so incredibly lucky. I'm just, you know, I'm so grateful and I'm really happy. And I think part of why I can be happy is that I put, I put a lot of the tragedy in my books. So it sort of leeches out of there, but I, I have a very positive world view. And I think that's how you get through these terrible things. You're absolutely right. So when you're writing, does all the emotion, like, are you crying? Are you in it? Like, are you just feeling all the feelings as you're typing or Like, does it all just come out and then you shut down the computer and you can walk away and be okay? Like, what is that like? Yeah, it is like that. It's exactly like that. It's there's some scenes when I had to write, I knew like, oh my God, I don't want to write this. I don't want to write this. I did not want to write Stella in the coma because it felt a little too close. So that took me a long year, a few weeks to get into that. And then once I did, I was, I go into the zone where my husband could shout out, the house is on fire, we have to leave. And I wouldn't hear. So I was very, very deeply in the zone. And then as soon as I stopped, I felt a little better. And usually what I have to do when I stop writing something like that is I go online and I look at like 10 celebrities who had bad plastic surgery or (laughs) would you You know, or something like that, just to get me in the frame of, in the right frame of mind. So, and then I'm fine. And then I'm fine for the day. And then I feel like, oh, good. Okay. That part's done. Now I can move on. Wow. And I read somewhere that when you wanted to write With or Without You, because you had already written a book involving someone in a coma, your agent had told you not another coma book. Is that true? Yes, she did. She did. My agent is very, my agent is Gail Hoffman, who's wonderful. And she's very blunt. I mean, she will say, she's wonderful and helpful. And she will say things like, really? You think people want to read about that? <laughs> and when I told her about this book, she said, really? Another coma? And I said, Gail, this is different. This is really different. And it was different because the first coma book was right after the coma. And it was very close to, you know, a woman who didn't remember anything. And it was more about her and her husband. And when I wrote it, I felt a little bit better, but obviously I didn't feel healed because I still was thinking about it and thinking about, I'm sort of a quantum physics junkie. And I love the whole idea that, you know, there is no time, that it's man-made, 
that everything sort of exists in the same period and maybe you can access it and maybe you can't. And I kept thinking, well, that's interesting. I'm going to try to access this coma and do it again and see how it makes me feel and how it makes my character feel. And I just got immersed in it. I just found it so completely fascinating and I I wanted to put the spin on it about that people could get better the first book was mostly about like no it's a terrible thing and thank god it's over this book was more about the wonder you know that the brain is very fluid and I I have this friend Joseph Clark who's at the University of Cincinnati who does research on comas and neurology. And we just talked for hours and he's just so brilliant. I would ask him all these questions like, well, could somebody go in a coma and come out and would they have the ability to heal? And he would say, well, you know, they might. And I thought, wow, that's so great. I want to know more about that. And his whole thing was that the brain is very weird and we don't understand everything about it. And you can literally become a different person if the norms are firing in a certain way and that was I wanted this book to have a sense of wonder I really did I wanted it to be more like wow this is amazing whereas the first coma book was more like oh what a tragedy I prefer the wonder to the tragedy it was also how I mean Stella is not the only character who changed her partner changed so much like watching his trajectory while she was in the coma even was just like Really, I mean, really significant with how he started realizing what was important and all the rest, making all these career changes and everything. So, right. Well, I also wanted to, the funny thing was that that took me by surprise. I really didn't think that I was going to be writing about like fame and what it means and this and that. And I was thinking a lot about it. Like, what does it mean? Because in the writing community, it means so many different things. And I mean, I don't know if you know my publishing story, but it's very weird. I mean, my first novel, I was a sensation. I was like flavor of the month and I was really young. I was like 20 years old and I thought, oh, it's always going to be this way. And of course it wasn't. (laughs) But my second book, my publisher went out of business. Third book, publisher went out of business. Fourth book went to a big publisher. They did no publicity, so the book died. Next publisher had a three book deal. Again, no publicity. So then I wrote this book. It was my ninth book and it was on contract. And my then publisher said, you know, we're not going to publish it. It's just not special. And I said, what? You're, you know, we can, can I make it special? And she said, no, we all here don't think that you can. And I said, well, will you look at another book? And she said, there was a silence again. She said, no, I don't think we want to. So I hung up the phone and I called my agent sobbing saying, this is my ninth book. Nobody knows who I am. And they didn't. Nobody knew who I was. I had terrible sales. When I got reviews, the reviews were great, but I would get like two reviews maybe. I said, what publisher is going to want to take a chance on me? And she said, don't worry. Don't worry. We'll figure it out. And I happened to have a friend who was at Algonquin. And she said, I love my editor. And I bet she would love your book. Can I show it to her? And I said, yeah, but I don't expect nothing's going to happen. So this editor called me up and she said, you know, I really love your book and blah, blah, blah. And I felt like I had to be honest. And I said, I have to tell you, I don't sell books. Nobody knows who I am. And she laughed and she said, oh, they're going to know who you are now and you're going to sell books. We want to buy it. So they bought the book. 
for a small amount of money, and I was thrilled. And they took that non-special book, and they got it in six printings before it was published, made the New York Times bestseller list its second week out, became a Costco pennies pick, and all of a sudden, all the people who had never you know, returned my emails or my calls were calling me, including the editor who had said it was not special, who wanted to know if I wanted to come back. No! <laughs> yes. So I had this very weird view about, you know, fame now where I thought, okay, you know what? It doesn't really, it's nice when it happens. It's wonderful when people respond, but when it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean anything because all of those other books that, you know, did nothing, I still think they're good books. I just think, you know, the timing was wrong, whatever was wrong. I'm doing okay now, but who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe this book won't sell or the next book won't sell or it'll take me four more books to do it. It's not why, it's sort of like, I don't think about that anymore. I think more about the pleasure of getting to write. And I just feel it's much more important to have that kind of relationship where one person celebrates you for real than, say, 100,000 people celebrating you and wanting to know you because they think you're famous. And I wanted to give that to Simon, who, you know, he needed to grow up and he needed to figure out that, you know, what's more important, that I, you know, being loved by a 100,000 adoring fans or being loved by one person. And I wanted him to make the right choice. So that's why I did that. (laughs) It's almost like you took all your life experience and it's like an egg that like you cracked in the side and then like the (laughs) eggshells inhabited a little bit of every character until it was like all this one big soup of your, of your splattered eggshells or something. It is. That's why, that's why I told you, you could ask me anything. (laughs) I never set out to write a personal book. I mean, I never really do. And then it always becomes about me. That's why I laugh when people say, well, your book's autobiographical. Like, well, yeah, you know, I cut up with a vein and there they are. And I don't really intend to, but that's what it is. It's like all those, all my feelings and obsessions. Sean Irving said that your obsessions never leave you. Like they're always like, that's why he always writes about loss and people he loves dying or bears or whatever. He said, because it's always there and it always comes out whether you want it to or not. And I think that's true. It does. It just sort of comes out. And in a way it's very healing because now I feel like, okay, I most definitely am never going to write about coma again. I'm done with that. And I have no idea like what is going to come next in my obsession, but I'll find out as I'm writing. That's what happens. Wow. Do you have any, you just gave so much amazing life advice and writing advice, even in just how to keep it all into perspective. But do you have any other sort of parting advice for aspiring authors? Yes. Do not give up. Never, never, ever give up. It's persistent that counts. Also, you are only seeing the tip of the iceberg when you're looking at the literary community. You're seeing the people posting about their great reviews or their great major book deals or their movie deals or whatever. But you're not seeing underneath that maybe that person who got a movie deal has had 18,000 rejections before that. And you're not seeing the 18,000 writers who are still struggling and they're not sure what they're going to do next. And they're very talented 
talented and they're, they still haven't hit their niche yet. Also, no does not necessarily mean no. When someone tells you no and rejects you, it could be because they're having a bad day. Could be because they're worried about their job. Could be that this particular book or essay or whatever is just not for them. Don't give up. The other thing, my best piece of advice was given to me by Carolyn C., the writer and the book critic. She told me at a party where I met her that the best thing I could do, I was a young writer then, was every week write a nice letter, a handwritten letter to an author you admire. Don't ask for anything. Just write to them and tell them how much a book of theirs meant to you. She said they will love it. They will appreciate it. They will write back to you. And that's how you build community. And it's a good karmic thing to do. And I thought, oh, that's ridiculous. It's never going to happen. I did it. And I actually wrote to John Irving. I tracked him down and I got a handwritten letter back from him. And the first paragraph was, you know, I read your letter twice because I kept looking for the ask and there was no ask. There was just this beautiful letter about what my work meant to me. And so I had to write you back. And that's how we made a connection. And I, I've been doing that ever since. I always, I just write to editors and I write to people. It's a wonderful thing to do. It puts kindness out in the world and people don't get enough of it. And all you have to do is just say, I wanted to tell you how much I love your work and thank you. And that's it. And you can do it by email and it has the same thing, but mostly never give up, never give up. Wow. Thank you. That was such a powerful conversation. Thank you so much. That was so great to talk to you and to hear your stories and your perspective on the world and your unique sort of point of view. So, oh my gosh, thank you. And now I see why With or Without You was so good and where it came from. And then it makes it so much more meaningful for me as a reader. So thank you. Thank you so much, Sibby. This was so much fun. And of course, anything you ever need from me or from The Blaze, you know, you just ask. Thank you. Me too. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Bye, Bye, Caroline. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to Rockets of Awesome for giving us a discount of 20% off your four times a year boxes. Uh, Rocketsofawesome.com slash books and discount code books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 